to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast with today's guest whose energy and advocacy efforts are changing lives, Bridget McNulty. If you're new to the show, welcome and thanks for stopping by. My name is Amber Kluwer and I'm the co-founder of Diabetes Daily Grind and host of this, the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. I enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living their best life with this disease. I learned so much about the South African healthcare system and what Bridget and the Alliance are doing to change the diabetes climate. But before we get started, I do have a few quick announcements. Number one, this episode was brought to you by Anastasia Healthy Skin, a restorative line of medical grade body and face creams, specifically created for people with chronic conditions like diabetes, neuropathy, and restless leg syndrome. The line is formulated to replenish moisture, increase circulation, and ease chronic discomfort. I've had the pleasure of using their products for a few months now. The restorative cream has done moisturizing wonders on those hard to hydrate areas like my hands and feet. I'm also a huge, huge fan of the nighttime serum. I seriously wake up looking refreshed and who doesn't need that? Be sure to check out the show notes for a stellar discount code. Number two, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit organization. I know you're listening and thank you for that. So be kind and throw a little change my way. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. Number three, the DDG Affiliates page is live, sharing brands and services like Anastasia Healthy Skin, who make our life a more pleasant one. And finally, stay engaged. Love, like, share, and comment on all things social media. Sign up for the e-newsletter. Leave an iTunes review. Subscribe to the DDG YouTube channel and click on the Amazon banner on the website before ordering. All right, let's get started. All right, Bridget, welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. And I want to start with, tell me where you're calling in from. I am calling in from Cape Town, South Africa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I am so happy that we could finally make this happen. Just because I'm always curious and I love talking to people in other countries, especially because you were literally on the other side of the world. Tell me about the season there, the climate or anything that's just about daily life. So Cape Town is right at the tip of South Africa, the southern tip of South Africa, and it has actual seasons, which is quite exciting for me. I grew up in Durban on the East Coast, where it's just hot all year round. We are entering winter now. I'm wearing slippers. We have fires at night. I don't know that it's like legit cold compared to the rest of the world. I lived in the States for a while and there we had real snow and stuff. We don't have snow, but we wear coats and scarves and gloves in midwinter and we're entering the cold season now. Okay. And how cold does it get there? So we're in centigrade and I can never translate. It gets to like, on a really bad day, it'll get below 10 degrees centigrade. But then everyone is talking about it all day long. (laughs) I I live in Oklahoma in the States and the weather here has been really weird for the past month. And we won't go into all that because listeners don't give a shit, but it's been raining for like 10 days. And so it's this weird, and this is normally tornado Mm. season. So now we're kind of shifting into, you know, what's going to be the next weather. Anyhow, it's exhausting. It makes such a difference though. Weather um, actually makes, I mean, not only for people with diabetes, but like just in general, it affects your mood and it affects oh, absolutely. Yeah, how you're feeling, energy. We were talking about this. I was talking to a friend earlier today, a girlfriend from like high school and mm. we talking about mental health. And when it's cloudy and rainy for 10 plus straight days, today I exercised outside, but I'm so used to being out there. So I guess May is mental health month. So maybe that's good timing, but let's talk about diabetes. That's the reason why we're here. (laughs) (laughs) I also like to talk about mental health. We can throw a bit of that later. Definitely part of it. Um, So I always start with, because everyone's diagnosis is different. So let's talk about Mm -hmm. your diagnosis story. So I had a very dramatic diagnosis story. I think many of us do. 
Um, I was 25 and I had just moved to a new city. I had started my first ever real life full-time job as a features writer at Real Simple Magazine. Oh, nice. And yeah, it was so exciting. And I was publishing my first novel. So I was on top of the world. I was like, a 25-year-old publishing a novel is on top of the world anyway, but I had just moved to this glamorous city. Everything was just going my way. And then I started losing weight and I thought, well, maybe this is like my magical new life. I can eat whatever I like and I just lose weight. And then I started getting really, really tired. And I was like, oh, this doesn't fit into the narrative that I'm writing here. And by the time I was diagnosed, I had probably, when I look back, been diabetic, had type 1 diabetes for about three months because there was a distinct shift when the symptoms turned serious. But because I just moved here, I didn't have a doctor yet. I'd like just started at work. So I didn't want to be lame and I don't know. Yeah. I can't find a doctor. I don't have any good excuse for it. I should have just asked one of my colleagues to go to their doctor. Mm -hmm. But I eventually ended up at this guy who took walk-in appointments. Not a good sign. And he tested my blood sugar and it was 25. We do MMOL. Should have done all the maths on this before. Sorry. And crazy sky high. Should have sent me straight to the hospital. And he got really cross with me and he said, you're practically diabetic. We're going to have to do some blood tests. And I was like, uh, okay, I have a friend staying for the weekend. Can we put it off a couple of days? He was like, fine, come back on Monday. And before that, he had said to me that I was probably losing weight because I was eating too healthy. So I should eat more junk food. He was a quack. He wasn't a real doctor, I didn't think. He sent me off into the city. I was riding a scooter at the time with a blood sugar of 25, which is like not compass mentis. And the last thing he'd said to me that I could remember was eat more junk food. So I went and ate a burger and chips and like a sugar-free Sprite because I thought that would make it better, which probably pushed me into the high zone, like the HI high. And then a friend of mine was diabetic and he freaked out when he heard. And my mom freaked out when she heard. So she booked me on a flight back home the next day. And the friend came over and tested my blood sugar. And I was in the high zone, the HI, unreadable high zone. And so he made me go to the hospital and get on a drip because he said I could fall into a coma midair. And the doctors wouldn't let me go until my blood sugar came down a little. And then I missed my flight because they wouldn't wouldn't let me out of the hospital. And so my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, his mom told him that he had to watch me the whole night in case I fell into a coma. And so obviously I woke up like seven times because you have to pee all the time. And I was so desperately thirsty. And so it was exceptionally stressful. And then I made it to Durban and went straight from there to the ICU. And I was in the ICU for five or six days. And they said I was three days away from a coma. But I think back now and I'm like, how did somebody not suggest perhaps this could be diabetes I went away with my husband's family whose brother is a type 1 diabetic Mm. like two weeks before definitely displaying all the symptoms but I think maybe there's something that's a little offensive about being like have you seen these symptoms maybe you could have diabetes well I'd be curious too why they would say that you're basically three days away from being in a coma like how can they even it seemed very specific at the time I was like wow how would you know that? But it became one of, you know, these things become mantras. And so I was like three days away from a coma. That's so crazy. But okay, dodged well, all of that. Okay. So how many years ago was that? Uh, 14 this year. 14 And it was ago. just before National Diabetes Month, which is November all over the world, I think, is it? Yeah. 
World Diabetes Day is set all over the world. And so I was diagnosed on the 12th of October. And then in November, everyone was talking about diabetes. And I was like, this is great. There's so much access to information that's on the TV and the radio all the time. And then December came and no one talked about diabetes for another 11 months. And I was like, oh, okay. Maybe not as popular as I thought. Okay, so 14 years ago, do you feel like you got proper treatment and educational materials as to what having type 1 diabetes actually is? No. <laughs> Does anyone? I was sent home with a stack of material, and I'm a, a reader and a writer, so I read everything I could possibly find. And it was all so deeply depressing. So everything I read said you're at greater risk of amputation, blindness, heart failure, kidney disease, and nowhere in anything that I read did it say or you could live a perfectly normal, happy, healthy life with diabetes. Like that was just not part of the message. And I remember distinctly that one of the stats said that half of all amputees are diabetic, but my head was so fuzzy because, you know, post-diagnosis, like my brain just didn't work. And I thought it said half of all diabetics are amputees. And I sort of had a one in two chance of losing a limb. I was like, oh my God. And I can see that fear would work for some people, didn't work for me it, and would never work for me. So for, for me, motivation and inspiration is, is always going to be the ticket, which is actually, we started Sweet Life. So a year and a half to two years after I was diagnosed, my boyfriend and I had wanted to go on this trip, this round the world trip. And we decided we were going to do it anyway, despite the diagnosis. And so we decided to make it like a campaign for a healthy life with diabetes. So it's still, even if you have diabetes, you can still follow your dreams and travel around the world. So he spent six months traveling around Southeast Asia and South America, and he's a photographer and I'm a writer. And so we took all these beautiful photos and I I wrote a blog every day and we did videos and all that kind of thing. And while we were on that trip, we decided that we wanted to start a magazine because bless, that's what you did 10 years ago. (laughs) And we started this quarterly magazine, Sweet Life, which we distributed around the country for free. And the whole goal was to show that it's possible to live a healthy, happy life with diabetes. I remember thinking I wanted to make it a club that people would want to join rather than something that you're like, ugh. Yes, and it's like, yeah. And that totally mirrors. And one of the many reasons why I wanted to have you as a guest is because that's, I was given a death sentence at age eight. And if I lived to be 20 years with this disease and still had my eyesight and my toes, that it would be a miracle. And so oh, after like the, the 20th anniversary, which it wasn't even called that at the time, I was like, okay, what the hell is next? I, I'm fine, you know, for the most part. Anywho. So I really like what you're doing and how you talk about things. And you started that so early too. A lot of people would sit and and just be pissed about the situation. So, yeah, I think it might be a personality thing that when something like terrible happens to me, a friend of mine told me this the other day that she thinks when something terrible happens to me, I have to find a way to make it positive so that it can, I mean, it's common, I guess, so that it has meaning. We yeah. do like making out of the big events of our life. I'm just about to publish a book called The Grief Handbook, which is my mom was diagnosed with four kinds of cancer and 13 days later she died. And it was so yeah. unbelievable. It was the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And then like nine months later, I started writing a book and we're coming up for the second anniversary of her death. And it's being published like 12 days after the anniversary of her death, which is lovely. But again, that's pretty quick too. And yeah. I think it's the only way I can make it okay that terrible things happen is by trying to find something positive that can come out of it or something meaningful that can come out of it, even if it's not necessarily positive. All right. Well, okay. So I don't like the word normal, but you've had a very, I'm going to say normal life in that you married the boyfriend that was there through the whole thing. Good on him for not being scared as hell. 
he gave me zero sympathy because he'd grown up his brother was diagnosed when he was 10 so my husband Mark was eight so he just grew up with there being like and that was the olden days I'm sure that was what you were dealing with too like syringes and vials and hectic stuff so he found out I was diabetic he's like oh sorry that sucks and that was like it that was all the sympathy I got and we got to a point at one stage where like we would go out for dinner and I'd have to dial up my insulin and inject and while I was doing that he'd be like stealing bites of my food off my plate and I was like no bro like just a little sympathy but no it it was very lucky because like imagine you dating someone with a needle phobia that's it yeah yeah, I have a normal relationship and then we've had two kids. So I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old and that was the most extraordinary control of my life. But geez, it was like a nine-month sprint. And then breastfeeding is like the only two emergency lows I've ever had in my life were in the first six weeks of breastfeeding because you just have no idea what your blood sugar is going to do because it goes dramatically low, but like low, like you could eat every piece of sugar and it would still not want to come up but it doesn't do it while you're breastfeeding which would make sense and you could kind of predict it does it while the milk is being produced what and that's just a kind of magical miracle anyway I mean I hope you can prove me wrong this is what my endo told me I was like why have they not done studies and he said because every woman is obviously different every breastfeeding child is different and this is apparently why you go low is because you burn all the sugar producing the milk Okay, that is fascinating. And all the things that I've heard in 38 years living with diabetes, I've never heard anything about breastfeeding and the lows. So I'm not going to prove you wrong with that. But what I'm going to do is because I'm starting a new podcast series, Just the Facts, Please. I'm going to be somebody who can talk about that because that's crazy. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll give you my two stories. I had never and have never since these two incidents, which were two weeks apart, had scary lows. The one was my first night out, bless. And I was watching the Rocky Horror Picture Show, a live performance. It was so exciting. I was like, so excited. And I checked my sugar walking down the stairs and it was 3.5, which is low, but not super low. I wish I had the calculation on me, sorry. And it's times 18. So 3.5 times 18. It's like a low, but not a dangerous low. And because I didn't have like the big baby bag, I had like the cute little purse to go out for the evening. I didn't have sugar on me. So I went to the bar to stand in line to buy something. And there was like no panic in me whatsoever. And the next thing I knew, I was like... Turning in circles and passed out. Okay, so the 3.5 is a blood sugar of 63. Yeah, so it's low, but it's not like danger. You know you need to do something, but it's not 40. Yeah, you're not panicking. And then the other was at my dad's 70th birthday, and I went to bed. I checked my sugar just before, and it was like, I want to say like 4.5, not worrying at all. And so I ate a piece of millionaire shortbread, which has like shortbread, caramel, and chocolate on it. Definitely going to sort you out. And then woke up in the middle of the night, and I remember saying to my husband, I feel weird. And then the next thing I knew, he'd like called an ambulance. Neither of those have ever replicated themselves in my life ever. And it was because I had a six week old. So a six week old and an eight week old and the breastfeeding lows, just they are sudden and dramatic and very difficult to treat, but I don't understand them. So please. Totally. And let me say that in pulling out my phone, I'm literally looking at it. Your high blood sugar when you were diagnosed, I think was 603. 25 times 18. Hold on, let me redo that. I'm not very good at that. 450, still. It's way too high for an average person. To be sent off into the city riding a motorbike and going to eat a burger. (laughs) It's not a good day. And so one of the things I found so fascinating, and I love other cultures and what other communities are doing, and I'm looking at my notes because there's so many things I want to talk about in our limited amount of time. T1D treatment in South Africa. You know, what do you have Hmm. access to? What devices? Okay, I want to start with when you were first diagnosed. Did, were you put on insulin pins, syringes? Were you mm-hmm. an insulin pump? Like, talk, talk to me about that. 
So there's no pumps. That can be like crossed off the list. I think it's something like 2% of South Africans can afford pumps. I don't think I will ever try a pump. It's just wildly unaffordable. It's largely kids. Yeah. Um, there were no devices. So the Libra came in. We have three devices now. So we have the Freestyle Libra, the Medtronic, and the Dexcom. Okay. And those came in maybe three or four years ago. Pretty much about the same time. The yeah. Libra came a little bit later. Um, I want to say the Medtronic came first, but I'm not 100% sure because that was linked to the pump, I think. It was not widely accessible at all. The Libra started being widely accessible about maybe two and a half, three years ago. And now with our advocacy efforts, we started uh, SA Diabetes Advocacy. And for the first time ever, we got it covered by medical aids this year. So in South Africa, there's a public and a private system. Mm-hmm. And if you can afford it, you have private medical aid. Um, you can't, you have public state care. So I have private medical aid. I was put straight onto insulin injections. And I remember distinctly the lady came into the hospital to show me how to inject the rep or whoever it was. And she was trying to like, what's it called when they squirt out like the four units to uh, prime the injection it, yeah. and it wasn't working. And she like tried four times and she was like, Jeez, I'm having such a bad day. And I was like half dead and lying in a hospital bed and had just been told that I would be injecting myself like four or five times every day for the rest of my life. And I was like, lady, could we have a little perspective here? I think you're doing fine. And apparently our insulin accessibility is very good in comparison to other African countries. So insulin is widely available. It's human insulin, which is not great. So like there's human analog and then the new analogs. So it's like way, way back. And that's our next advocacy effort is to improve the efficacy or to improve the quality of the insulins in state care because you know how debilitating it is when you are like doing everything right, you're eating the right food and then you inject the wrong insulin and it all goes to hell and you don't understand what's going on. And if that's the only insulin you have access to, that's a very demotivating space. You know the reasoning or like why South Africa doesn't have access to that, to the better insulins? Because it's like a government tender and the old insulins are cheaper. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay, so when you pay for insulin out of pocket, what does it run you? So actually no one does, which is awesome. So on a medical aid, it's covered by your, there's something, we have a basket of care called prescribed minimum benefits, PMBs, and that covers your insulins, but only specific insulins and testing strips, but only a certain number of testing strips and lancets and needles. And that has to be covered by your medical aid, but they don't have to choose the fancier new insulin. So I have like a small copay for Traceba because I choose Traceba over Lantus or Levmia, but I pay like 90 rand a month, which is, I'm saying 90 divided by 15. I can do this one. $6. It's like nothing. Um, and if I was on the, the insulins that they chose for me, then I wouldn't have a copay at all. And also in state care, you get your insulins for free, but it's whichever ones are prescribed to you. It's so crazy to me. And it's, yeah, I have no words and that's rare, <laughs> you know access to insulin in the United States is readily available is insanely expensive and things like that. But if I really wanted one or the other or whatever, I would have a a lot more options, I guess. Um, So I'm thankful for that. Okay. And something, one of the things that you brought up when we talked originally in, I'm not quoting you, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Then in 2016, the number one cause of death in women was diabetes, type Mm -hmm. two diabetes. So let's talk about that a little bit. Like, how did we find that stat? And I can't say, why do we think that? Because there's so many factors there, but tell me a little bit more about that. So the stats is a stats, so statistics South Africa, and they do an analysis of like, 
morbidity and the leading cause of death. So diabetes is the number one cause of death for women in South Africa and the number two cause of death for men. It is outrageous. And there are a bouquet of reasons. This is the work that Sweet Life has moved into. So we're now South Africa's largest online diabetes community, but we're also a nonprofit and we work with the Diabetes Alliance, which is all the organizations and associations and companies working with diabetes in South Africa. We've got everyone around the table together, which is amazing. I want to stop you right there. It took a lot for you to get that. Right. You came yeah. in with something and I'm not going to say push back on the government, but you. Yeah, we pushed back on the government. <laughs> so I came in as so I came in a sweet life and I was like, guys, I managed to get a, a meeting with the National Department of Health, which is what is so extraordinary about living in South Africa. I studied in the States and I loved it. But there are like layers that you have to get through before you can get to the head honchos, before yeah. you can like speak to the people in power. And South Africa is not really like that. So I pretty much just like emailed the right person at the National Department of Health and they were like, cool. I have a slot in my diary, come for a meeting in a couple of weeks. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like I was representing Sweet Life. So we're a nonprofit, we're like a registered public benefit organization, but we're small fry in comparison to the National Department of Health. And I went in and I was like, guys, I don't know if you know this, but diabetes is the number one killer of women. Like we need to be doing something about this. Right. And they said, we agree, diabetes is the next big problem, but we can't deal with one nonprofit. We need you to form an alliance of all the organizations, associations, and companies working in diabetes in South Africa. And then they sent me off and they thought that was the last they'd see of me. But because of Sweet Life, the magazine, I had all those contacts. Yeah. And so I think it was also just a case of the right timing because everyone I asked said, yes, we definitely want to be involved. And it has been such a joy because we literally got everyone around the table and now we get everyone around the virtual Zoom table. But it's so great for everyone to not be working in silos anymore. So yeah. even if you're making money with your particular product or whatever it is that your company does, there's this awareness now of what everyone is doing for diabetes in South yeah. Africa. And so one of the biggest problems, obviously, is education, because the trouble is that people don't know they have diabetes. So type 2 diabetes, we're talking now. So one in two people with diabetes in South Africa is undiagnosed. That's a depressing global statistic. But the trouble is that why people are dying is they're only presenting at hospital when they're at the amputation, blindness, kidney yeah. failure, heart disease level of complications. And the reason they have those complications is because they never knew they were diabetic. So you can't fix what you don't know is broken. Right. And then COVID came along and shone this huge spotlight on diabetes because, so I'm in the Western Cape, we have nine provinces. And in the Western Cape, 70% of the COVID deaths were people with type 2 diabetes. Yeah, But they often only found that out after the people were admitted because yeah. they didn't know themselves that they had type 2 diabetes. And we know that uncontrolled blood sugar is one of the risk factors for severe COVID. But if you don't know that you have diabetes, you can't be controlling your blood sugar. Well, so I want to say at something the moment, it's just this huge mess. It's like yeah, a please. global like advocacy effort. And I mean that is that anytime a person goes to a GP or whatever, the blood sugar needs to be tested. Everybody needs to be tested for diabetes. I don't care what age you yeah. are or whatever, because as you know, being diagnosed later in life, it can happen at any time, type one or type mm -hmm. two. And so, like you said, you don't know what you don't know and you can't fix something that you don't know about. So yeah, I'd like to see that pendulum shift in that if you get the diagnosis, okay, here's all the positive things that you can do and how you can turn around your life to live your best life. And so that we're yeah. not getting a toe amputated and whatnot. So, okay, keep going. Sorry. When I went to the National Department of Health, I was like, we should just get everyone, tell everyone yeah. they need to know their status. Once a year, they should just get their blood sugar checked, like your HIV status. So yeah. HIV in South Africa is fascinating. It was the worst thing that had ever happened to us. Mm -hmm. And now 
they've achieved 90-90-90. So they've achieved 90% diagnosed, 90% on treatment, 90% of those on treatment compliant. It's like the greatest success story of all time. And I'm like, could we just take all that budget and all those researchers and direct that same energy towards diabetes? So I said, I think the message needs to be get your blood sugar checked once a year during November. And they were like, oh, no, we can't afford that. They were like, no, we can't, that can't be the message. It's not sustainable. And I was like, oh my God. Okay. So the message is if you're over 45, get it checked every year. And otherwise, if you have any of these risk factors, but that messes up the message because it's not know your status, which is HIV is know your status. Like just once a year, get that test, tick it off your to-do list. But we're working on it. It's been interesting. We're coming up for the two-year anniversary of the Diabetes Alliance. And it's been really great for me to see that there's still momentum. So my big concern was that we would get embroiled in government and then everyone would be like, oh, no, I can't be bothered. And that hasn't happened at all. So we've got two big projects on the way. And the one is a diabetes education platform through WhatsApp, because WhatsApp is hugely widespread in South Africa. Um, where we're going to adapt the material to make it really locally relevant and very simple language. Because I did this huge year-long analysis of the diabetes educational materials available and everything is pitched way too high above the health literacy of yeah. most people in state care. Yeah, it was fascinating. It was, it was pitched at a grade 12 to post-grad level. And when the health literacy was tested, it was grade four to grade seven. So <laughs> we've got to like just simplify everything dramatically, which is so difficult to do. It's so much harder to write simple than to write complex. So that's like, we just keep doing that. And then we are in the early stages of trying to get a diabetes registry created, Yeah, which this is going to blow your mind. I have only found out these details since the last time I spoke to you. So what we wanted was just to create a diabetes registry because at the moment, who knows? I mean, how many diabetics have we got? Nobody knows. Type one or type two? Nobody knows. Where are they being treated? Nobody knows. Are they on medication? Nobody knows. There's paper trails, but the state healthcare system is still largely paper-based, except in some, so there's these ideal clinics that have, they're actually called ideal clinics, that have computers and are properly connected to the internet and all of that, but most of the time, it's still a paper system in 2021. Wow. And so we wanted a diabetes registry and we've since been digging and and the consensus is that we actually just need to join together with the other alliances. So like the Heart and Stroke Foundation and the Cancer Alliance and the NCD Alliance and push government to create an electronic database, which they are on the road towards doing, but we need every patient to have a profile that can be searched for and that is linked to hospital visits and clinic visits and medication and that kind of thing. It blows my mind that that isn't the case. But That's, Well, I would say that in, here in the States, are you familiar with T1D Exchange? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So that's basically what it is you, you're talking about. And it's incredible that I'm not going to go into that, but that we don't know more about who has diabetes, what type of diabetes and where we are located. Because you could really look at pockets and know that your educational materials need to be focused more for this area because you have more type twos, or this is a more of an African-American community. And here's the difference. And so here in the States, we have T1D Exchange, which I hope everybody creates a profile. We need this information in order to move Mm. forward with things. So good on you and your team. And I have to say that I would love to be a part of, if I could just be a Zoom, just fly on the wall. (laughs) The next time your alliance gets together, I would love to just hear what you guys are talking about. Oh, uh, yeah. I'll invite you. It's this week. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. It's our quarterly meeting. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. Um, it anyway. might be the middle of the night for you, though. 
Well, I'm a late night person. So okay, there you go. I made way, comments, but oh, <laughs> okay. And some of the things that I liked about reading more about Sweet Life and some of the other things that you've done is describe the acronym for, and I hope I don't mess this up, TEAL, mm-hmm. the T-E-E-L, because I feel yeah. like it is so, I'm going to say simple, but it's to the point and it's very helpful. So I'm kind of obsessed at the moment with foundational knowledge because I think what happens so often is we get caught up in like the, oh, let's do a project on this and let's do yeah. some diabetes educational material on this. And what we really need as a country, which I realized after after speaking to every diabetes expert I could find. At the beginning of last year, I did this diabetes educational analysis, I said, but I also spoke to all the experts that I could find, and there were many of them, and said to them, if there were only three things you could say to a person with diabetes, like what are the absolute must golden rules? Mm -hmm. And they all said the same thing, but in different ways. And so what we boiled that down to is TEAL, T-E-E-L. T is take your medication as prescribed. E is eat healthy food. E is exercise a little each day. And L is lose weight if you need to. And then attached to each of those, put just one tip. So take your medication as prescribed. We found a lot of the type twos in our community were saying they stopped taking metformin or they were complaining about taking metformin because it gave them diarrhea as a chronic side effect. But if you take it with your dinner, the effect, those side effects are lessened. So the tip is take your metformin with your dinner. And it's also important to remember to take it every day. The injection technique, if you're a type one, is to rotate your injection sites because otherwise you're at risk of hypertrophy, but we didn't even go there. We just said rotate your injection sites. E, eat healthy food. The only tip, because I mean, food and diabetes is just such a hot topic, but everyone agrees that we should eat more green leafy vegetables. So we said eat half a plate of green leafy vegetables at lunch and dinner. Even if that's all you do, you're already like a big step in the right direction. Right. Exercise a little each day. A 30 minute walk every day. And I know the actual recommendation is like five days a week. I was like, no, we're just going to say a 30 minute walk every day and then lose weight if you need to. Small habits can make a big difference. So if yeah. you're already eating half a plate of green vegetables, going for a 30 minute walk a day, then just switch out whatever you're drinking for water and eat yeah. and drink eight glasses of water a day. So no more fizzy drinks, no more juice. And if we can just get that right, then we've taken a huge step forward because the problem is at the moment people are given complicated meal plans or they're given these long lists of what you can and can't eat or they're told they need to start an exercise regime or they're told it's really important to lose weight and they're just like, it's too much. I don't even know where to start. I'm just not going to bother. Whereas if they're told one thing to do and you can pick them up one at a time. So our goal is just to say the same thing over and over again. So Teal is on our website. It's on our social media. We started a podcast and it was, those were like five of our episodes were explaining Teal and each, we've got a storytelling series where we've got South Africa's favorite storyteller. Oh man, they're so exciting. And then we've got them translated into, I was going to say, it's just so easy. I mean, it's well said and whatever. And I have to ask you, I'm making the recommendation for half of a plate of leafy greens. Do most people in Mm -hmm. South Africa have access leafy greens yes yeah one of the big arguments for eating healthy food is that it's more expensive obviously that's always the big argument because fast food is so cheap but we have a lot of uh, like roadside markets or just people who sell fruit and veg on the side of the road so it's not necessarily that um you would go into a shop and buy your leafy greens but you would be able to have access to seasonal leafy greens and it can be stuff like cabbage yeah like we detailed all the options It, it doesn't have to be like fancy kale and that kind of thing. (laughs) One of the things I learned from you and some of the literature that I've read on your website is that other cultures within South Africa are at higher risk of diabetes. And that, again, is going to be a part of the Just the Facts series because I want to understand why that is. And you spoke specifically to one little pocket or one little group. 
yeah, I found it fascinating. So Indians in Durban, where I'm from, there's the second highest population of Indians outside of India. And for some reason, Indians have a genetic predisposition to type 2 diabetes. So it often runs in the family, as we know, type 2 does. But there's something about Indian genes that make you more likely to get type 2. And then I think, obviously, diet also plays a lot into it. So like the typical Indian diet is curries, which always have lots of like delicious potatoes. They're served with fried rice. They're also served with rotis. Delicious. All things good. <laughs> oh, samosas and sweetmeats and not a lot of green leafy vegetables, not a lot of salads right. and that kind of thing. But there is actually a genetic difference. And what's so fascinating is that in South Africa, Center, who's our Society of Endocrinologists, don't use the word pre-diabetic and have asked us not to use the word pre-diabetic mm-hmm. because pre-diabetes is classified as a certain HbA1c, so falling between a certain yeah. HbA1c. And because of this Indian genetic predisposition to type 2, many Indian people will have a higher HbA1c even if they don't have diabetes. Right. And I'll like, well, Okay. It is fascinating to me that your body can be more prone to something. Type one, we don't really have that. We don't have a satisfying explanation. Right. Well, okay. So I asked some of the guests, do you have a, well, A, do you have a family history of type one? I have one cousin who was diagnosed when she was like three months, but I come from an Irish Catholic family. So I have 25 cousins. Okay. (laughs) Number one. Number two, do you have a conspiracy theory or why do you think you... (laughs) Got type 1 diabetes. Don't we all? <laughs> um, I have an A-type personality conspiracy theory. I think that many type 1s, especially those diagnosed later in life, are A-type personalities who were specifically handed the most frustrating condition they could possibly live with because it's impossible to be in control of. Right. And no matter what you do, things change every day. I also think that it often seems to follow a period of great stress. And I think that makes sense from an immune system perspective. So if your body's in fight or flight, it's not doing internal healing. Right. So yeah, ATAPs who've had a period of great stress is my conspiracy theory. Because the explanation they give us is so lame. Two or more immunological insults. I'm like, what does that even mean? It's like, well, you had a virus and then you had another virus. And then for some reason, those two random viruses triggered this potential. Yeah. That's satisfying. I've learned What's so your conspiracy many. theory? My own personal story was I was really sick as a kid. So I had pneumonia a few times and I was on an astronomical well, amount of antibiotics. Okay. And so I just feel like my gut was robbed and it was just gut health for me because I have no family history of type one. So mm. my mom gets upset when she hears me say that because she, I know she's like, I did the best I could. I did what I the doctor told me, you know, and she did. So I just think, yeah, my body. And also when we were kids, stuff. antibiotics were like wonderful. <laughs> oh yeah. You couldn't have too many of them. It's like, like gum. There was a pink drink that you could have. Anyway, that's horrible. Yeah. Uh, I'm thankful that I had the healthcare that I had, especially as a young person. Yeah. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about, because I'm fascinated with this, and I read, I've been reading, I, I'm going to say an article or something that you sent me about African cuisine and yes. heavy starches. I mean, I'm like, so many little factor things are coming together. So can you talk to that at all? So we actually wrote, I do have one here. We put together this diabetes food guide, nice. which was the hardest thing I've ever done because we were trying to simplify this is what yeah. your plate should look like like yes. it should be as simple as it possibly can be and then we illustrated all the various foods that people would want to eat but it was it turns out way too complicated which is what I was saying about how writing simply is so difficult so now we have spoken to a behavioral scientist and we'll simplify it even more so it's difficult to say African cuisine because so we have 11 official languages we've got right. a lot of different cultures but 
a kind of standard South African meal would be meat, red meat, and pup, which is like a fluffy white grain-like thing. That and then the texture is like super overcooked oats without any okay. roughage. Okay. And so that is obviously terrible for blood sugar. And then traditionally for lunch, we would just have bread. And so there's lots of like, again, white starch kind of thing. Like traditionally, as in like most South Africans have bread, I guess we're a carb heavy society. And that yeah. the things that are easy and cheap to get access to. What a report, do you think? Like I would be, uh, I would yeah. have a nervous breakdown. So apparently, according to our dietitians, it's a small cup with a meal is the same as like, a medium potato Ooh. for carb counting. Yeah. So I guess it's kind of the same as rice. I generally just don't eat it. Easier not to. Is it good? Uh, not really. No, not, not for me. I think it's one of those things that is a memory food. So like if you ate it as a child, then you really enjoy it. But it's very cheap and it's very widely available. Um, and it forms the basis of like if we're talking like in more rural areas, it forms the basis of, of many meals. Um, you would have like pup and a sauce as your meal kind of thing. Um, for people who don't have a lot of money. And so, yeah, that's stressy wow. if you're trying to eat fewer carbs. Yeah, it's a whole different world chain. You should come and visit. Oh, my gosh. I would love to. Stop COVID allowing. My list. Yeah, when I can yeah, it's, travel again. Are you guys allowing people to travel to come into the country? I think so. I know people are leaving to go overseas. I don't think we're not welcoming people yet because no one's vaccinated. We're, like, right at the beginning of the vaccination journey. We're still oh. trying to get the over 60s done. So, yeah, not in a hurry. Wow. The over 60s got started at the beginning of the week, this week. <laughs> wow. So we're we're a while away. Is everyone well, vaccinated there? I don't know that I can speak to that like accurately. I've been vaccinated now for two months. Okay. And I'm in my 40s. And now the state that I live in, now you can get vaccinated, I think, if over the age of 12. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I will say Oklahoma, oddly enough, because we're so backwards and so many other things, had a lot of access to vaccines. So okay. I don't know why that is, but anyway, I'm glad. Yeah. Everyone in my life is vaccinated. Oh, amazing. It's pretty crazy. Wow. Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait to start traveling. The, the Real Life Diabetes Happy Hour, which I've been doing virtually for the past year, is about to hit the road again so I can be around oh. diabetes people. And um, it's just so crazy, the freedom that getting vaccinated and I won't preach to that, but I've never really feared for my life with diabetes, but that definitely quarantined me hardcore. So yeah, yeah. And okay. so, I think. So I will gladly come and visit you all. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a pleasure. And so, yeah, I'd love to be invited to the Alliance. And if I can make it, if I'm not dead asleep, I would love to participate and let me know what I can do to help. I really love what you're doing. And that's one of the reasons why I want, one of the many reasons I wanted to have you as a guest. And I feel like this is going to be an ongoing conversation because I want to see the progress of what you're doing and the advocacy efforts and how we as a people, people living with diabetes, our voices are being heard. And I'm really happy yeah. about that. Let's walk yeah. one arm together. Let's help each other. Like you said, absolutely. Stop being in the silo and join forces. Yeah. I feel really strongly about the fact that anyone who is doing good work with diabetes, we should all just work together because we can learn so much from each other. And advocacy efforts in South Africa are so new. We started SA Diabetes Advocacy a year ago. Like it is literally in its infancy. And so we have so much to learn from many others. Okay. The last question, do you feel like, and somebody asked me this a while ago, I was being interviewed for another diabetes publication and they asked if the fact that living with type one diabetes is obviously exhausting at times, a good portion of the time, but then working in the industry or talking about it all the time with other people living mm -hmm. with it, there's no shutting it down. And so mm -hmm. do you feel like you were 
extra exhausted by that or does it fuel your fire and keep you going because you have other people that understand what you're going through, you know? It actually really fuels my fire. And I think part of that is because, so we're coming up for Sweet Life's 10 year anniversary this year, but for the longest time, it was just a passion project that was on the back burner while I had a real job that would like pay my bills and (laughs) while I had kids and all of that. And it's only in the last two years that I've been able to work on it. I'm still not working on it hundred percent of my time, but like I'm working on it three quarters of my time now. And it's only in the last two years that I've been able to. And honestly, seeing the tangible difference I can make in diabetes in South Africa, I keep trying to get people to jump on the bandwagon because I'm like, this is it. Like, this is the moment where we can change the future of diabetes in South Africa. We all understand this lingo now of flattening the curve. And this is the point where we can flatten the curve and stop people dying of something that is not a lethal disease. Like, it's so important to me that we are moving forward with that. So I find it really motivating. And I think also most of my work is type 2 diabetes related. Yeah. And so it feels quite different. We actually had, uh, last week we had South Africa's first type 1 Ask Me Anything, which was nice. so fun. On We did like a Facebook Live and there was a panelist of five of us. And it still feels like kind of unique to me to be talking type 1. So it almost feels like I have this condition and then my work is doing advocacy for it, but it's not 24-7. And I just love meeting other type ones. It feels like such a relief to know that like everyone else is dealing with the same deep confusion. Because when I was diagnosed, I didn't know I knew one person got type one. And so it's so great that I think there's this movement and I don't know if this is particularly in South Africa because everything is so fresh, but there's this movement towards vulnerability and honesty and Mm -hmm. talking about the real lived experience rather than it only being like, I can climb a mountain even though I have diabetes. Yeah. Yeah, a willingness to connect with other people in a meaningful way, which I love. Well, and I've said this on so many podcasts and we'll end with this, is that we learn more from each other than we ever do in a doctor's office. No offense to the medical community, but it is this type of conversation that has me thinking about my diabetes management differently. And like I said, breastfeeding and dropping your blood sugar, who's talking about that? Who knows about that? No one. No one. And here's the thing. I mean, he's like, I'm going to put out a poll. How many... T1D mothers have experienced this and did their endocrinologist and or their OBGYN or whomever their medical team is, did they put the pieces together to realize that that is why they were having such severe lows was because of this? My biggest tip came from Kerry from Six Until Me. She said, stash sweets down the cushions of the couch because when you're pinned breastfeeding with a kid, with a baby, and you can't move because the baby is mid-feed and it takes ages in the beginning. It takes like 20 minutes outside in the beginning and your blood sugar suddenly goes low. You can't be waiting till the baby finishes feeding. You need to have something that you can like reach for. So I just stashed sweets all over the house. And I had a toddler at the time who was like, this is a wonderful treasure. (laughs) (laughs) Funny. Well, thank you so much, Bridget, for joining the the podcast. Thank you for for all that you're doing in the advocacy world for South Africa. They're lucky to have someone as exciting as you and your personality is, yeah, it's well-received, I'm sure. It feels like a great space to be in. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. I love connecting with I love connecting with you. We'll just have to have like, you're going to have to pop into happy hour sometime, which that might be the middle yes. of the night too. I know, whatever, exactly. we'll figure it out. But you love the, the crew. We've got people from Australia, um, England, oh, awesome. Scotland, Canada. So it's always exciting to learn about other people are managing diabetes in other countries. Yeah. And the accent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do much about that. I'll take it. <laughs> thank you All so right. much for having me. What a joy. All right. Have a good week. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, 
It was way too early for me to join in on the quarterly alliance meeting, but I'll be sure to stay in contact with Bridget and all of her advocacy efforts. Good on you, Bridget, for all that you're doing for the South African diabetes community. Before I wrap up, I have a few quick reminders. Number one, do your skin a favor and check out Anastasia Healthy Skin Care. You can find their gracious discount code in the show notes. Number two, the affiliates page is live and growing. If you would like to join this list of reputable brands, please shoot us an email to Penelope at DiabetesDailyGrind.com. Number three, I know you're listening. And again, thank you. So please be kind and throw a little change my way. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. And finally, I'm here for my diet peeps and the medical community. So feel free to contact me anytime on social media or directly at amber at diabetesdailygrind.com. Connecting with you makes my heart happy and your continued support and love are the reason I keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows everyone.